Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, He said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we know that this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And yet we see in this passage that you did not leave us alone. You promised us 
that one day it will come to an end. We pray now through your spirit that you would illumine this text to our hearts and eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a lot here, and we're not going to be able to talk about everything. Um, But let's get started looking at the problem of sin. And when I say sin, this is what I mean. Up until this point in the story, everyone and everything was operating within God's creative design. He designed and ordered all of creation to follow a certain pattern. And up to this point, everything has been operating within that design. But now, in chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve begin to think and then behave outside of that created order. This is what sin is, operating outside of God's design. And this comes about because of the influence of a snake, We read that this serpent was craftier than all the other animals that God had created. And we see his goal is to deceive Adam and Eve. Look at the exchange between the serpent and the woman starting in verse 1. The snake subtly changes the word of God when he says, Did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We know from chapter 2, and Eve surely knows that that's not what God said. In fact, we read in chapter 2 that God said uh, that they could eat of any tree in the garden. They just could not eat of the one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. But the serpent's deception continues. Because in verse 4, he says, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is the serpent doing? What is the serpent doing here? He is saying that God's command, God's order to not eat from the tree, that it was bad. He is trying to deceive Adam and Eve into not trusting in God's command. He says, Look, God knows, and he's lying here, but he says, God knows that this tree is good for you, that it'll benefit you, that it'll make you happy, that it'll make you just like God himself. You see, God is jealous, and he doesn't want to share his glory with anyone else. And so he's put this rule upon you, do not eat of this tree. The serpent is saying that that God is is withholding something from you, something that will make you happy and fulfilled. The serpent is tempting the woman to question the goodness of God in this rule. He's tempting her to say, if God were truly good, wouldn't he want me to be happy? If God were truly loving, wouldn't he want me to be fulfilled? That's the temptation, that's the deception that the serpent gives to Adam and Eve. And we know this temptation, don't we? We know that that thought, God, if you are good, don't you want me to be happy? Why would you say no to this thing that I want to do? Why would you say don't think that way, don't act that way, don't you want me to be happy? If he says no to something, isn't that God withholding something from me? We know that temptation. Do you remember when you were a kid and you were 
shopping, grocery shopping with your parents, and you'd get to the checkout line. And uh, right at eye level height to the kids, just rows and rows of candy. And if you're like me, you would say, Mommy, can I have some candy? Daddy, can we buy this? I, mean, I, I hear it now all the time with my kids when we're shopping. And what did your parents say? No. No, it'll spoil your dinner. That's what I say. But to a little kid, to, to us when we were kids, it just didn't make sense. Because all we thought was my parents were withholding something that in my understanding would make me really happy right now. But I know, like if I gave Theo that Reese's peanut butter cup, well then he's not going to be hungry an hour from now when dinner is ready. And he's not going to eat his dinner. And then he's going to go to bed with his stomach half full, angry. He's not going to sleep well because he'll be hungry. He's going to wake up the next day tired, hungry, and mad at me. I know that he shouldn't have that Reese's peanut butter cup. He doesn't understand that, but I do. And so what he thinks is me withholding from him is actually me wanting the best for him. The serpent is trying to get Adam and Eve to think that God does not have their best interests in mind, that there is something out there that we can have that God doesn't want us to have, and it'll make me happy. But that's just not true. But this is what we do with God all the time. God has laid out for us this design, this created order, the the Ten Commandments, Jesus' law of love. God says, don't do this but do this instead. And we say, no, God, you don't understand. If I do this, it'll make me happy. God, you don't know what's best for me. You don't know what'll make me feel happy. You don't know what'll fill me up inside. God, I don't need you to tell me what to do. This is the problem of sin. The problem of sin is that we substitute ourselves for God and we declare what is good for us, what is right for us. John Stott says this, that the essence of sin is just that. We substitute ourselves for God. Man asserts himself against God, puts himself where only God deserves to be. And we have to understand that this is the essence of sin. Sin isn't just doing bad things or not doing the right thing. Sin is a heart attitude and posture that says to God, you do not know what is best for me, but I do. That is the problem of sin. That is the essence of sin. It's behind everything that we do. It's behind workaholism, Believing that putting in more hours at the office and ignoring family and friends will pay off in the long run. I know what's best for me. It's behind our materialism. Believing that having the newest, the fastest, the shiniest, the smallest, the biggest, whatever it is, the newest thing, that finally I'll be satisfied. I know what's right for me. It's behind our lust. Believing that looking at pictures or dreaming about that acquaintance will make you feel loved. It's behind short tempers and anger, believing that only through expressing your emotions in this way that you can be true to who you are. Behind every one of our sins is this essence that we think we know what is right for us. We don't trust God. 
We don't think that he has what's best for us in mind. At the end of the day, the problem of sin is that we believe that God doesn't love us. So we take matters into our own hand. That is the problem of sin. But now, let us keep going and look at the pain of sin. Because yes, we can talk theoretically about what sin is, but practically, what does this look like? How does this affect us? We have to look at the pain of sin. Up to this point, I've said everything was beautiful in all of creation. And the climax of creation was the creation of us, Man and women, mankind, we were the climax of his creation. And we've seen already that man was created multidimensional. Here's what I mean by multidimensional. It means that we have these different relationships, this web of relationships that he created us in. We've seen that God has created us in a world. And so we have this relationship to the world around us. Some of us work with our hands to take the things of the world and create something beautiful out of it. We have this relationship with the world. We also have a relationship with other people. We saw last week that God said it is not good for man to be alone. We were made for relationships with other people. We also have a relationship to ourselves. We read that God made man in his image. And one of the things that comes with that is we have a conscience. We have a a moral compass. We have an understanding that we are a mind, body, soul conglomerate. We understand ourselves. We have a relationship to ourselves. And first and foremost, we have a relationship with God. He made us in this world to glorify him through worshiping him and obeying him. That is what it means to be a flourishing human being, is to exist in this web of relationships. Now, at, at my house, um, we're, learning, uh, we're learning how to discipline our kids. And one of the things that we're trying to figure out how to do better is disciplining them in such a way that the punishment for their bad behavior is somehow associated with that bad behavior so that they make that connection between I'm feeling pain in this way, but it's because of this thing that I did. And so like if, if, if Theo throws a toy, like we don't want him to do that. And so the punishment will be to take away that toy so that he associates the punishment with the thing. And in some similar way, the pain of sin that we see happening in chapter 3 is associated with who we are and what we were supposed to be. And so we were multidimensional beings as God originally created us. And so the pain of sin is also multidimensional. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 17. God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Man was created to have dominion over the ground, to work the ground, to have a good relationship with the ground, and now the ground is cursed. In toil will you now work it. This means that going to work is going to be hard. 
We are going to work up a sweat. The ground, the world is going to fight back against us. It means that things are going to break and decay and fall apart. This also means that like, natural disasters now affect the world. Forest fires and hurricanes and floods and droughts and famines and pandemics. The ground is cursed. And so our relationship to the world is now broken. And we see in verse 16... God says to Eve that her desire is going to be contrary to her husband and that her husband is going to rule over her. God is saying that now husband and wife are going to fight. They're going to seek to have control one over the other. They're going to want to dominate the other person. It's just a particular marriage, but it's true of all relationships that we will seek to dominate over one another. Our relationships with others around us is broken. We also see that in verse 7, when Adam and Eve realize that they're naked, they run from one another. They try to cover them up from one another. The pain of sin is that our relationships with one another are broken. We fight one another. We hurt one another. We divorce one another. And we also see in verse 7, uh, our eyes are opened. Our knowledge of ourself increases. We know now our weaknesses, our limitations, our frailty, our fragility. We see our shortness. We see our weakness, our inabilities. And what do we do with that knowledge? We run away from it. We try to cover it up. Our relationship with ourselves is broken. We feel comfortable bodies. We feel isolated and lonely. We feel depressed and anxious. We feel pain and sin. Perhaps most clearly in this passage, we see that our relationship to God is damaged too. As the Lord God comes into the garden, he is seeking Adam and Eve, and what is the text? They hid from him. They ran away from him. Our story here. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. And God places a, a, a cherubim, one of those angelic figures with a flaming sword to protect the garden so that Adam and Eve can no longer come into the presence of God. The pain of sin is that our relationship with God is broken. We feel distant from him. He feels far away. We don't hear his voice in our hearts. We feel this longing for this God-sized hole in our hearts. Because humans are multidimensional, we feel the pain of sin in each of those dimensions. Sin has corrupted everyone, everything, everywhere. Sin is individual. It's systemic. It affects families, marriages, and individuals. It affects us when we're alone and when we're with other people. It is everywhere. It affects everything. But that also means that each and every one of those relationships is part of God's redemptive plan. Because sin has affected every one of those relationships, the good news of the gospel is that God plans to deal with every one of those relationships. 
That through the death of Jesus and his resurrection, there are implications that every one of those relationships will be restored. Colossians 1 says that God was, through Christ, reconciling everything to himself. He was restoring every relationship back to himself. The story of Jesus that we invite our neighbors into is not just a story of a new relationship between you and God, but it's a relationship restoration across all of our dimensions. We proclaim a message that's not just good news about you and God, but it's a message of good news about you and your spouse. It's about you and your family, about you and your body, you and your work, about you and the world. It is a salvation that is all-encompassing. Through, through the grace of God, he offers forgiveness and empowers us through his spirit to work towards restoring those relationships, all while hoping and trusting in God's promise that one day everything will be restored. We've seen now the problem of sin, that we believe God doesn't really love us, that we know what's best for us. We've seen how the pain of sin spreads out through each of our relationships in this world. Finally now, let us look at the provision for sin. Or let's ask this question, how is God going to fix this situation? Remember, we are deceived into thinking that God doesn't love us. That God doesn't have our ultimate good in mind. That is a lie. The reality is he does love you. And we actually see that in this text. Because while he is pronouncing judgments on Adam and Eve, he also pronounces a judgment on the serpent. And in that judgment, he promises to one day finish him. To end his power. And he begins this promise in verse 15. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. God is acknowledging the fact that from now on, the serpent and the wickedness and the evil that is embodied in the serpent, that there will be this war waged between evil and humanity for all time. That there is this constant struggle between good and evil. It's like two kingdoms at war, the kingdom of wickedness and the kingdom of God. And that for generations, they will be at war with one another. This, this means that, look, in our, in our modern humanistic society, we believe that like education will bring peace to the world, or, or politics will bring peace to the world, or, or philosophy, or technology. We think that we know how to fix the problem, but God is saying, no, there will be this endless war between good and evil, between God's kingdom and the kingdom of evil. But then... He changes and goes on with his promise. He changes in the text from talking about offspring in general to a particular person. A particular offspring. Look at the second part of verse 15. He says, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is saying one day there will be a time when one of the descendants of the woman will crush your head. He will end your reign of power. Yes, you will strike his heel and hurt him, but he will give the deadly 
blow to your head. Who is that? When did that happen? Who is the offspring of the woman who has the power to crush the evil one? It's Jesus. Like the gospel of Luke begins his story of Jesus tracing the lineage of Jesus back to Adam and Eve. Jesus is the seed of the woman. But when did he crush the head of the snake? I love, I don't know, love is a weird word. I appreciate the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And I really enjoy the opening scene when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And around him is slithering a snake. That's not in the gospel stories. Mel Gibson had some creative liberty when he made that movie. But I think why he put the snake in the garden was because it was a reflection of this story. What was Jesus praying about? He was praying to his father and saying, God, I know your will for my life. I know what you have asked me to do. I know that in front of me is the cross and pain and suffering and death. Is there any way that we can accomplish your will apart from that? Is there any way that we can do something else? And the snake is there tempting Jesus to wonder, does my father really love me? If he was really loving, would he really send me to the cross? Does my father have my best interests at heart? It's the same temptation. Does God really love me? But at the end of his prayer, Jesus says, but not my will, your will be done. I don't want to do what I want to do. I want to do what you want me to do. And in the movie, he walks away. And as he walks away, he crushes the head of the snake. It's symbolic. But it's a symbolic nature of of what we see here. That Jesus is able to do the very thing that Adam and Eve could not do. Adam and Eve said, God, I don't think you have my best interests at heart. I'm going to do it for myself. Jesus says, no, not my will, but your will be done. And he heads to the cross. And when he goes to the cross, Jesus isn't the only one or the only thing that dies on the cross. We see something else dying on the cross with Jesus. What is that? It was our sin. Our sin died on the cross with Jesus. The scripture says that when we sin, the wages of our sin, the thing that we deserve for our sin is death. God himself in the garden said that if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Jesus on the cross dies in our place, substituting himself for us. If the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. On the cross, we see the death of our sin. He took it away. He wiped our slate clean. He has forgiven us by his blood. 
That means for those who have faith in Jesus, every one of our sins is forgiven. Scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed your sin from you. We see the death of our sin in the death of Christ. The power of sin over you has been defeated. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sin has no cosmic power over you. Yes, sin is still present in this world. And sin is still present in you and me. But the decisive victory over the power of sin on the cross assures us that one day God's kingdom will overtake the universe, ending the reign of the evil one. But the question remains, how are we to live our lives today, here and now, in light of what God has done on the cross and in the shadow, anticipating the final restoration of all things? How are we supposed to live our lives knowing, yes, the power of sin is done away with, but the pain of sin is still present in my life? Let's look at what happened with Adam and Eve as God sent them out of the garden into the world corrupted by sin. What did he provide for them? Look at verse 21. He gave them garments of skin, animal skin, to cover their nakedness. We talked last week about Adam and Eve being naked and without shame. It meant that they were completely known by one another, completely welcomed and loved by one another. But now, because of sin, their nakedness is a catalyst for shame. It's a reason to hide from one another. They don't feel lovable. They don't feel accepted. They don't feel welcomed or worthy. Why? Because the pain of sin is still there. Because of their mistakes, because of their past, we feel the same way. We feel guilt and shame when our past catches up with us. When we're found out, when we mess up, when we think that we know better than God, isn't that always what happens? We think that in the moment, doing this or that, saying this or that, thinking this or that will make us feel good, and maybe momentarily it does, but then sadness and emptiness, and isolation creep in, and then guilt and shame. Yes, the power of sin on a cosmic level is done away with, but the presence of sin in our lives is still there. What are we supposed to do without it? What can we do right now, or what can we do tonight? What can we do tomorrow? How do we deal with the present pain of sin? God provided a covering for Adam and Eve to cover their shame and guilt. And he's provided a covering for us as well. He's provided the perfect righteousness of Christ, which covers us and makes us pure. The good news of Jesus is not just that he has forgiven us our sins. Yes, that is true, But it is also true that through faith in Jesus, you are covered in the perfect righteousness of Christ. 
It means you are loved because of Jesus. You are accepted by God because of Jesus. You are welcomed and approved and delighted over and worthy because of Jesus. You, me, we are big, ugly sinners. But we're also completely and totally loved by God. And we are righteous in his sight. Not because you have dealt with your sin, but because God has provided for your sin and has covered you with his son. I don't like it when people give away the endings of movies. It ruins the tension and the suspense when you go into a story knowing how the story ends. But I think Jesus, I think God's word spoils the ending for us on purpose. Because right in chapter 3, we read, everything's going to be okay. Your sin's going to be dealt with. You're going to be covered. You are loved. You are worthy. You are accepted. He wants us to know, even from the beginning, at the lowest point of humanity, that he still loves us. He gives away the ending because he wants us to trust him. He wants you to know that he knows what is best for you. He wants you to come to him. Let him deal with your sin. He wants you to come to him so that he can cover your shame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth. Lord, that we are the chief of sinners. Lord, that I know that I'm the worst person in this room. I'm so much worse than I could ever imagine. And yet, we know that you love us far greater than we could ever dream. Lord, you promised to Adam and Eve to one day crush the head of the serpent and to restore all of our relationships to one another. Lord, we see that promise fulfilled in your son who chose to follow your will for his life. He went to the cross in our place, forgave us of our sins, and has given us his righteousness. We pray now in your spirit, would you remind us of that truth today, tonight, tomorrow, every day. Lord, whenever it is that we feel guilty and shameful, remind us that you have covered us in the righteousness of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.